They lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock and see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and they bring hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not with me. The sea says it's not with me. It can't be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It's hidden from the eyes of every living thing. It's concealed, even from the birds of the sky. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it. He alone knows where it dwells, for he sees the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the winds, when he measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and he appraised it and he confirmed it and he tested it and he said to the human race, fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil, that is understanding. Good morning, everyone. How are you this morning? Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them uh, to Job 28, the Old Testament, and take a look at the text that Donna just read for us. If you're a guest, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series right now called Life and Uts. It's a study of Job's journey through suffering. If you've missed any of it, I encourage you to go back, go online, and listen to all the parts of the series. They're all quite important and kind of build on each other and build the story of Job into the story of Job. So uh, make sure you go back and check those out. But uh, if you've missed some of it, here's uh, here's sort of a, a quick summary of what we know about Job. We know that he was a wealthy, ancient, Near Eastern businessman, basically, a man of integrity, um, a faithful husband, a loving father of 10 kids. He was respected by his community. He was a guy who loved, served, and worshiped God faithfully. But one day, Job lost just about everything he had. Uh, through a series of bizarre events, his life takes an unfortunate turn, to say the least. Uh, violent marauders um, invade his land, steal his possessions, and murder his servants. Uh, a natural disaster wipes out all of his flocks. Um, a desert tornado uh, sweeps in and strikes the home of his oldest son, killing him and killing the rest of all of his kids who were there for a party. Uh, soon after, Job loses his health. He becomes... Uh, physically repulsive, just covered with boils and open sores from head to foot, sores that he would scrape and scratch with broken shards of pottery. He was a, he was a physical mess, uh, and no one really wanted to be around him, including his wife. Uh, the consensus was that Job had done something bad to, to deserve it all, you know, that he was now the target of divine retribution. His friend Eliphaz summarized it this way. He said, who being innocent has ever perished? Good people don't suffer, Job. He said, those who plow evil and sow trouble reap it. 
Obviously, you've done something sinfully twisted. You know, you're getting what you deserve. God is judging you. If you want him off your back, figure out what you've done and fix it. You know, be a better person. Have more faith. I mean, that's what people were telling him. Yet despite their harsh accusations and their moralistic opinions, Job maintained his innocence. Uh, He rejected their assumptions and their advice. In fact, he says to them, you're all miserable comforters, all of you. You're not really helpful. And that was true. And so Job was alone. You know, he was deserted by remaining family members and friends. He was alienated by his community. He suffers financially, uh, financially, materially, uh, physically, relationally, emotionally, socially, and he has absolutely no idea why. And, and that's why we said that's what, that's what makes the story so relevant for us because Job's story is our story, right? I mean, when we suffer, uh, when we face painful events in life, we wrestle with the same question, the question of why. Why this? Why that? Why him? Why her? Why now? Why is this happening to me? And what Job's experience has taught us is that in the face of inexplicable suffering, uh, with humility, we need, to, we need to concede that there are things in this world and universe that we just can't fully understand. And yet through it all, as God's people, we choose to acknowledge his grace in our lives and we trust him. You know, that's the choice that Job made. Remember, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. In other words, he says, I realize everything that I, ha- that I have is is not really mine. It's on loan from God. I didn't bring it in with me. I can't take it out with me. You know, God has allowed me many good and wonderful things, all of them a measure of his grace. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, as we come to uh, chapter 28, after listening to everybody's opinions and, and finding their assessment of his situation unsatisfactory, Job seems to have this personal aha moment and by way of poetic soliloquy, expresses what suffering was teaching him about life. In verses 1 through 11 of the chapter, he begins reflecting on how um, human beings mine the earth for things like silver and gold and iron and copper and lapis lazuli, which I had no idea what that was, but I found out it is a dark blue semi-precious stone. And in verse 9, he says, you know, people assault the flinty rock with their hands and they lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock. Their eyes see all of its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and they bring hidden things to light. Translation, he says, people work really hard and go to great lengths to find precious, precious things. But he says, in the context of suffering, those things are of little value. Job says what a person needs more when they're in pain is wisdom. But notice how he emphasizes the elusiveness of wisdom. He says, you know, most of us know where to look and dig for precious minerals and stones. But verse 12, he asks, but where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends it. It comprehends its worth. It can't be found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. And using what I see as very effective poetic imagery, Job presses this notion that true wisdom is just really hard to obtain. You can't, you can't dig it out of the mountains. You can't pan it out of the rivers. In fact, he says wisdom is nowhere to be found in the natural world. And so verse 20, he restates the question. He says, where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It's hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. Again, Job says... Wisdom can't be found in the land of the living. Now, let's think about that for a second, because um, in, 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 in uniquely creative way, a uniquely creative way, Job is telling us what? I mean, he's telling us that despite all of our abilities and, and our desires and our achievements and our best intentions, 
As finite human beings, we just can't, we just can't solve all the mysteries of the world, one of the greatest of which is the mystery of suffering. You know, we're unable to reconcile the full meaning of it uh, and, and the purpose behind it, especially when it happens, to, it happens unexpectedly, unexpectedly to reasonably good people. You know? Nothing in the world explains it. That was true in Job's day. That's true still today. I mean, as human beings, we can do a lot of things. I mean, we can, we can fly to the moon and explore Mars. We can, we can map the human genome. We can identify subatomic particles. We can cure disease. We can compose symphonies, write poetry like Keats and Frost. We can paint like Michelangelo and Rembrandt. We can build telescopes, powerful ones that see deep into the universe. We can design faster computers and develop greater technologies. We can do all of that. But in and of ourselves, can we ever hope to obtain wisdom? Can we find it? The kind that speaks of ultimate reality and truth. Job's answer is no, we can't. Not, not on our own, we can't. Not even Google can help us. Although Job doesn't necessarily mention Google, but you know what I'm saying. So is this, prob- is this problematic, this elusiveness of wisdom? Is it a problem? Job says, yeah, it's a huge problem. It's, it's a big problem because wisdom is exceptionally valuable. He says, it's more precious than anything we could ever acquire. How valuable? Job says, well, it can't be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. And then he goes off on this sort of lyrical rant. He says, it can't be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper aren't worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush can't compare with it. It can't be bought even with pure gold. So... And clearly, Job feels strongly about, you know, the value of wisdom, especially uh, in the midst of suffering. But what is he talking about exactly when he talks about wisdom? In the ancient, ancient Hebrew, there were two words for wisdom. Job uses them in this parallel way here in verse 20. Uh, he says, where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? And the first Hebrew term that he uses here is the, the term chokmah which refers to mastery or skill, being skillful at something. And then parallel to that, Job uses the second Hebrew term, bina, which refers to insight or discernment on how things work. See, in Job's mind, wisdom isn't so much about acquiring information as it is about the practical application of what we come to know. In fact, in a similar sense, all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, wisdom refers to skillful living. It's the ability to discern and to follow God's design for us as human beings and lead good, healthy, safe, productive, satisfying lives. But here's the deal. Wisdom is not just about knowing and submitting to God's moral will, his law. I mean, don't get me wrong, obeying God is is smart. It's the right thing to do. But wisdom is also about discerning what to do in the circumstances of life where moral laws don't apply. Now, let's be honest about this. Sometimes our approach to life is very secular. Um, It's when we think, you know, all I need are the facts. Just give me the facts, I'll go from there. Or our approach to life is very religious in that we say, well, all I need are, are moral rules. Give me the rules and I'll go from there. In some cases, these approaches work. Because sometimes all we need are facts. Tell me what medicine I need that's going to make me feel better, and I'll take it. Sometimes all we need is moral law. Should I steal from my company? Well, no, right? 
But what about the other 90% of life where facts alone and moral laws don't apply? What about times when we face really difficult questions? Do I go to college? Do I not go to college? If so, where? Do I get married? Do I not get married? If I get married, who do I marry? Do I follow this career path or that career path? Do I move or stay put? Do I speak or keep quiet? You know what I'm saying? I mean, so many options in life are morally permissible. God has given us an incredible amount of freedom to make decisions. And so, and so knowledge of facts is important and knowledge of moral law is critical, but they won't give us everything we need for a well-balanced, well-lived life. We also need wisdom. Because on top of everything else, when things in life go bad and you experience pain and suffering in some form or another like Job, hard facts and moral laws won't comfort you. They won't. They, they, they won't necessarily help you reconcile the pain of what's happening and, and tell you how to respond to it. And so Job says, I need wisdom. You need wisdom. We all need wisdom. And coming to that conclusion requires a couple of things. First, it requires we recognize the complexity of life. And we've talked a little bit about this in the series, but if you haven't figured it out yet, life is rarely simple. You know, we are, we are, we are all complicated uh, physical, emotional, intellectual, social, spiritual, imperfect beings trying to exist together in an imperfect world. And on some level, we all, we all know that. We get that. And yet we like to set our sights and hopes on simple answers and easy solutions. And that's true of a lot of people. I mean, that's true of religious people and irreligious people alike. And for example, the secular relativist says, look, it's all very simple. You know, life is irrational. There's nothing, there's nothing, it's nothing more than a biological accident. There's no ultimate meaning to our existence. Therefore, live however you want. Do what you want. doesn't matter. The religious moralist says, no, hold on. There is meaning to our existence. And if you're good enough and if you follow the rules well enough, everything's going to go right for you. But can you see how those, those two approaches, those two philosophies, relativism and moralism, are somewhat naive and just too reductionistic. You know, nowhere in Scripture are we ever told that life is simple. Nowhere. We're never told that good things always happen to good people and bad things always happen to bad people. Instead, we're given the harsh truth that sometimes great things happen to miserable people and tragic things happen to innocent people. But in the end, pain and suffering comes to all of us. Or as Jesus put it, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. And some of us hear that and we say, well, what is that about? Well, it's complicated. In the Old Testament book of Proverbs, Solomon, who's considered one of the wisest men who ever lived, uh, has a lot to say about life and its complexity. For example, in Proverbs 14, he says, all hard work brings a profit. In other words, if you work hard, you'll be wealthy. But in chapter 13 of Proverbs, he says, the poor work hard, but injustice sweeps it all away. So in other words, some people work really hard and they don't become wealthy, they become poor. Is that a contradiction? Well, no, it's not a contradiction, it's just reality, right? Sometimes you can work hard and produce a lot of wealth, other times you work hard and end up bankrupt. You end up poor. Speaking of poverty, sometimes people who want to help the poor fall into the trap of simplicity. Uh, I was thinking about it this week, uh, being election week, and realized that for, for some, for some people who hold to a more liberal perspective, poverty is mostly about oppression. Uh, and so 
we need to, to throw more and more money at the poor. For other people who hold to a more conservative perspective, poverty is mostly about a lack of personal initiative and taking responsibility, so we need to challenge and exhort the poor. Yet the older I get, the more I realize both of those approaches are, are, are somewhat naive and just too simplistic. And it's quite possible to do more damage to a person than good if we try to help someone in need while failing to understand the dynamic complexities of poverty. As parents, we fall into the simplicity trap. Proverbs 22.6 says, train a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. And many people take that as a guarantee. If you do everything right, everything's going to turn out right. But that doesn't always happen, right? Sometimes you do everything right with a son or daughter, and they just kind of blow up. Why? Because life and relationships and people and politics and society and the world at large is complicated. And why things happen the way they do is really hard to understand. I mean, take Job, right? He, he was a good man, yet he suffered. He suffered injustice, disappointment, loss, sickness. I mean, I'm guessing he recognized the complexity of it all. The second thing wisdom requires is we require, or as we recognize our own human limitations. You know, Job was a Job was an intelligent, articulate, respected, successful, moral guy. But he realized he didn't have all the answers to life's questions. And as, in fact, we talked about this last week. Job humbly admitted needing help from outside of himself. Again, in Proverbs, Solomon says a lot about wisdom. And one of the things he says is he says, don't be wise in your own eyes. In other words, don't be prideful, don't be arrogant. Because if you're wise in your own eyes... You end up a fool. The psalmist says, if you're a fool in your own eyes, then you're on the path to wisdom. Because he says, with humility, with humility comes wisdom. Listen, here in chapter 28, Job is telling us that wisdom is valuable. We need it, but it's elusive. It requires we humbly recognize the world is complicated and our understanding is limited. And so we won't, find, we won't find true wisdom in and of ourselves. We won't even find it within the creation. Where then do we find it? We, will, we find it outside of ourselves. Job says the origin of wisdom is God. In verse 23, he says, God understands the way to wisdom. He alone knows where it dwells, for he views the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. In a way, Job is saying, look, there's wisdom out there somewhere. Somebody knows everything about the universe and how it works and about humanity and what's good and right and safe and healthy for us. There's someone who knows the correct path to take, the right choice to make, you know, the best thing to do. And that someone, that someone is God, the creator of all things. Or as 17th century theologian, pastor, and poet Isaac Watts expressed it, he formed the stars those heavenly flames. He counts their numbers. He calls their names. His wisdom is vast and knows no bound, a deep where all our thoughts are drowned. When I was in grad school, just getting started, um, one of my first professors, uh, an Old Testament professor, his name was Dr. Meredith Klein. And he was just, the dude was brilliant. I mean, just brilliant. In fact, on my first exam in his class, I got a D. I probably shouldn't tell you that since we're working in the Old Testament, but <laughs> it was really hard, man. I didn't realize it was going to be that hard. So I got better. I got better, and I got out. So I did okay. But uh, Dr. Klein wrote a commentary on Job. And when he came to this section of the text, this is what he says about wisdom. He says, wisdom is directly connected with God, who is the source of wisdom. 
A man's acknowledgement that he and his world are subject to the creator is the lifeblood of wisdom. A man begins to be wise when he ceases to strive for wisdom independently of God and in his own power. Apart from a true recognition of divine revelation, man's meditation and investigation produces not wisdom, but folly. Here's my Ray K translation. He's saying, as creator, God alone is the origin and source of wisdom. And to deny that is, is, is foolishness. Speaking of our creator, do you guys realize that creation accounts in all other religions uh, and cultural mythologies assert that the world came into being through some conflict, some power struggle, some accident, some interplay or fighting between gods and, or deities? you realize that? It's only, it's only Christianity that asserts God alone, who has no rivals, that God alone in his wisdom and power delighted to create the beautiful, intricate, wondrous world we know. And as supreme artist and craftsman, God brought into being, you know, something from nothing, order uh, from chaos. He lovingly formed human beings in his image, and yet in rebellion we turned away from him. And as a result, you know, all kinds of things not originally intended entered the scene, deceit, violence, uh, injustice, disease, pain, suffering, and death. And although the world retains its beauty and its order, uh, the creation is marred, it's broken, and so are we. And God's plan to redeem his creation, including us, involved himself entering our world to live the perfect life we could never live and to die the death we deserve to die and by grace provide a way back to Eden to rescue us, to, to save us, to redeem us. And every day God is at work, even through the brokenness of our world, to bring good from evil. Think about all that. No wonder it's complicated. No wonder it's hard for us to wrap our brains around. Now the best I, look, the best I can tell you about my life and about your life is this. God knows what he's doing. As creator, he, he alone is truly wise, and that's, that's what Job is affirming here in this soliloquy, namely that as human beings, we, we want wisdom, we need wisdom, but only God has it. And if Job ended with that reality, ended that as the reality of verse 27, that'd be a bummer, man. We'd be just left hanging, but he doesn't. In verse 28, he informs us that God is willing to grant wisdom. The question is, how do we attain it? And he gives the answer. He says, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And just so you know, uh, Job's not alone on, on this. Solomon said the same thing. He said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The psalmist writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The ancient prophet Isaiah declares wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. But how do we understand this idea of fear? Because often, due to uh, language and cultural differences, our tendency is to, to interpret as meaning uh, you know, being afraid of God, being scared of God, but that's not the case. The Hebrew term for fear carries the idea that with a sense of our own weaknesses and our own limitations that we stand in awe of God. It's about, it's about wonder. It's about respect. It's about, it's about honor. It's about reverence. You know, every now and then, uh, the art museum downtown brings in a special exhibit of an artist. And uh, whenever that happens, my wife Margie and I, we like to go downtown and see it. And so there's been several over the years, and I remember going to one, um, uh, an exhibit of Edvard Munch's um, works. Munch was an early 20th century Norwegian painter. 
And he, had a number of, he has a number of famous works. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Uh, he has an early one called The Dance of Life, which is kind of, you know, love and, and huggy, kissy stuff kind of there. It's really kind of light and nice. And then, he, and then a little later on, he has this one, Death in a Sick Room, you know, not real uplifting, just kind of a little bit darker. And then his most famous and my favorite is this one, The Scream. You know, you ever wonder what this guy's thinking about? Did he drop his cell phone in the ocean or something? What's, like, what's going on with him? And that's why I think I just find it fascinating. What's happening with this person? And he looks remarkably like me. So that's troubling in so many, many ways. But um, you may be thinking, okay, okay, come on, let's move on here. What's the point, right? What, what does this have to do with the topic? Well, if you think about it, when you, when you go to a museum and you look at an object of art, and maybe it's not Munch's Scream, which is weird, uh, but maybe it's Rembrandt or Monet, and when you look at that, you tend to be quiet. In fact, everybody does. Everyone, everyone looks not only at the piece with awe, but also at the abilities of the artist who created it. In the presence of something famous, something beautiful, something magnificent, something inspiring, you stand with reverence and honor to the, of the creator. It's the same with God. Fearing him means being in awe of who he is and what he's done. It's not just, and it's not just about obeying him morally or believing in him mentally. It's an attitude of the heart in which we're humbled by the creator's goodness and greatness. And we're filled with awe before him. We honor him with wonder and joy. And that, you know, that was Job. He, he revered God. He really did. But let's keep in mind that you can't take what he says out of context In other words, he talks about fearing the Lord, and he does so in the midst of pain and confusion. Life has gone terribly wrong for this guy. And and so Job is not merely saying, hey, if you want wisdom, fear the Lord. Uh, It's more than that. He's saying, if you want wisdom, fear the Lord, particularly when you're suffering. And that's, that's hard teaching right there. I get it. That's hard. Fearing God when life is good, easy. Revering, honoring, humbly trusting God when life stinks and we're confused and distraught and in pain, that's difficult. It's difficult for you. It's difficult for me. It was difficult for Job. So how do we do that? Well, here's one way to look at it. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, she's, she's a famous Christian author, former missionary to Ecuador. Uh, there's the, the, the story of her, her husband and, and other missionaries being killed by native uh, Ecuadorians there many years ago. And, and her life was filled with a lot of pain and suffering. And she did a lot of writing about it. And um, at one point, she tells the story of, of a friend of hers who was a sheep farmer in, um, in northern Wales and how... Uh, shepherds there have to submerge their sheep in an antiseptic bath uh, each year or else they'll, they'll be eaten alive by parasites and insects. And, and so once a year, the sheep have, the, have to have this, this traumatic experience. And she describes watching it happened, uh, happen when she was with her friend John. He was the shepherd. And, and how he would allow the animals to walk down into this, this bath to the point where they couldn't touch anymore. And then they would struggle and try to get out the other side. And when they would start to struggle and try to get out, uh, the shepherd would reach over and hold them and allow their ears and their eyes and their noses to stay under the antiseptic bath for a few seconds. And then he'd release them to come out. And she said when they, when they came up and you could just see it, the panic in their eyes is like it revealed what they were thinking. The sheep were thinking, what the heck is happening here? You know, what is the shepherd doing? I thought he loved me. I thought he was caring for me. He's, he's trying to kill me. And she says, imagine what it would be like for the shepherd 
even with the greatest amount of love, to try and explain to the sheep the what and why of antiseptic treatments. You ever talk to a sheep? <laughs> they don't really catch on very quickly. I mean, it, it's impossible for sheep to understand that kind of complexity, to comprehend, in this situation, to comprehend the good that was happening to them. It was beyond their capabilities. And was, it's with that in mind, Elizabeth Elliot says this. She says, I have had some experiences in my life that have made me feel very sympathetic to sheep. There were times I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was allowed to get from my great shepherd whom I trusted. And like these sheep, I did not have a hint of explanation. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, her story and her words are helpful because they remind me how, of how the distance between the understanding of a sheep and the wisdom of a shepherd is not unlike the distance there, there is between our limited human understanding and the vast wisdom of God. I mean, sure, painful things happen to us that may appear random and, 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 and seem to carry no good purpose, but, but in the midst of our, our, of, our, of our tears, like Job, we must fear God, honor, revere him, and trust that he knows what he's doing. He alone is wise. I like how Christian author and thinker Ravi Zacharias states it in his book that just came out on suffering. He says, freedom from pain is not the only indicator of whether or not something is beneficial. And he's right. But listen, here's the thing. Here's the good news. We have an advantage over Job because we know for sure that God not only sees our pain, but completely understands it. Because ultimately in Jesus, God himself entered this broken world of ours and experienced pain. Pain of loss and poverty and, and injustice and betrayal and brutality and violence and death itself. In short, God, suffering is God's experience too. And it's brought about an awful lot of good. It's brought about our redemption, our rescue. You realize all, of, among all the religions of the world, Christianity alone claims that deity became uniquely and fully human in Jesus. And therefore, God himself knows firsthand what suffering is like and what it's about. He suffered with us. He suffered for us. I don't know about you, but I find that to be very comforting. Listen, the, the life that God gave Job, the life that he's given us, is an amazingly good and beautiful thing, but it's complicated. Uh, in a broken world with broken people, sad, tragic, unjust, seemingly random, senseless, painful things happen. It's unavoidable. Suffering is a reality of our experience, and we can't, we can't fully explain it. We can't fully comprehend it. And maybe, maybe Job's story is your story today. Maybe you're going through something that's just really hard, really painful, and, and very confusing, and you're just struggling, and you're looking to God. You're saying, what the heck, man? What's happening? What are you doing to me? I, I thought you loved me. And the thing is, he does, more than you know. And it's in those moments of struggle and pain and confusion that we all experience, we each, have to, we each have to make a choice. Either we foolishly and arrogantly curse God and turn away from him, or like Job, with humility, we recognize the complexity of life and our limitations, and we place our hope and faith and trust in him. Because he's God and we're not. And he's wise and we're not. And he knows and sees as the good shepherd. He sees the good even when we can't. 
And that's why, in the midst of his suffering, Job feared the Lord in the truest sense. It's why he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. It's why, at one point along the way, he declares this. He says, Even, even though he slay me, even though the worst could happen, yet will I hope in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize this morning that our world is a beautiful, uh, intricate, complicated, wondrous place that you have created with your hands. And you have created us in your image and you have placed us here uh, and given us all of the the things around us to, to taste and touch and smell and experience for our pleasure and enjoyment. And yet in the midst of the beauty and, and in the midst of the wonder, there is brokenness. And we have all experienced it at some point or another, at some level or another in our lives. There's disappointment. There's betrayal. There's, there's injustice. There's suffering. There's pain. There's sickness. There's death. And um, in the midst of that, we, we often struggle to, to, to understand it all. We want to understand it all, but the reality is we can't. We are, we are significantly limited as finite human beings. And so our options are either we reject you and curse you because of what's happening, or with humility we, we recognize that we can't fully understand the complexities of it all, and that you are indeed our good shepherd who sees the good even when we can't, who has our best in mind even when that is just really hard for us to to understand. In the midst of our suffering, Lord, we need to trust You. We need to ask You for wisdom to do so. And, um, And in that suffering, know that You not only see it, not only understand it, but You have experienced it. For Jesus came and lived that life, that perfect life we could never live and suffered and died the death we deserve to die so that we might have life, so that He might redeem us, buy us back, bring us back to Eden. And so, Lord, we, we're thankful for Him today and for um, all He's done to make life possible for us and that no matter what happens in this life, greater things await us because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? So I want to thank you all for, for being with us this morning. And I, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe your story this morning is very similar to Job's. You're just going through, through some really difficult times, you know, and it, some inexplicable suffering. And uh, you're just struggling within. You're looking to God and saying, man, what is happening? What are you doing? You know, what's going on? And uh, the reality is sometimes we can figure it out and many times many times we can't. But if you're going through something, you just want someone to talk to or pray with, some of our, our prayer team folks will be down in the front and they're willing to, and happy to talk with you and just spend some time. Uh, but don't go through it alone. You know, uh, That's why we're here. That's why we're the church to support each other in good times and in bad. Uh, I hope you can come back next week. Uh, you know, Job, Job has been, he's been suffering a lot. He's been listening to to his friends and family telling him it's because he's done something bad and he's being judged. And, uh, and, and Job's saying, no, man, I don't believe it. I don't believe my relationship to God is a, a quid pro quo arrangement. 
And so he's been praying and he's been asking God for vindication. He's been asking for an explanation. So far, he's heard nothing. But next week, uh, we're going to get to the end of the book and God is going to speak to Job. And what's important is not just what God says to him, but what God doesn't say. So come back. We're going to, we're going to finish up the book. I think you're going to find it helpful. Okay? In the meantime, have a great week. And for uh, those of us who are going to be watching the Bears tonight, hopefully we won't suffer too much. (laughs) Just preparing you. Just preparing us, okay? So uh, have a great day. Let me pray for us, and then we'll be done. And now, Lord, as your people, we, we enter back into this beautiful, wondrous, complex world of ours. We give you thanks for it, thanks, thanks for it, but we recognize in the midst of it there's, there's some brokenness, and we're part of the, the brokenness. And uh, we are all in need of, of wisdom. We're all in need of your grace in our lives, and we're thankful for Jesus that brings that grace to us. And so no matter what happens to us this week, good, bad, or in between, may we live our lives in such a way that we point people to him. And now may your hand of grace and peace and strength and protection rest on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.